It's all Woodstock on this episode of the Goldmine Magazine podcast. How you doing? This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine. And we will have as a guest, Mike Greenblatt, the author Mike Greenblatt, talking about his experience at Woodstock. Mike has come out with a new book celebrating the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. It's called Back to Yasker's Farm, and it's a beautifully designed book, wonderfully written, and it's out now wherever good books are sold, and that's Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and you can go to Amazon.com. In fact, it ties in with the latest August issue of Gold My Magazine. We run an excerpt from the book, and we also theme the magazine Woodstock 50. So pick it up while you can at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million. But we'll be right back with Mike Greenblatt as he tells his full experience of Woodstock. It's really exciting. It's really interesting. And he also talks about his book and who he interviewed and all the facts in it. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine. The Music Collector's Magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. All right, welcome Mike Greenblatt, author of Back to Yaskar's Farm. That's out in bookstores now. Welcome to the Goldmine Magazine podcast. Hey, Mike. Yeah, I can hear you. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, okay, so everyone knows you. Uh, every goldmine reader knows you because you've been a, a writer for goldmine for a long time. But this is your first book, and it's about your Woodstock experience. It's a hardcover, 8 by 8 beautifully designed, lots of pictures, lots of facts, plenty of interviews, and a great testimonial by you running through it. As someone who experienced the mud the rain, the crowd, the peace and love, and most importantly, music. Looking back now, 50 years later, what has made this f- festival so mythical, you know, in your eyes? Well, first of all, uh, before I answer your first question, Pat, I've got to compliment you and thank you because you're the man that got me the gig. Uh, uh, to the fans listening, me and Pat Prince, we go to Yankee games. Pat always <laughs> loves my Woodstock stories. He always asks me to tell them and retell them. And the same company that owns uh, Goldmine owns a book division. They did a 2009 40th anniversary. It sold very well. So when the time came for the 50th anniversary, it was my man Pat Prince that suggested that I do it. Boy, do I owe him a dinner. Well, thank you, Mike. You you don't, though. Just uh, the friendship. I'm glad you told it because uh, it's a hell of a story. Uh, most people didn't get to experience what's like like you did. Um, I mean, you experienced practically everything. And you emphasize Max, yeah, Max Yaskar's farm in the title. Uh, was this to give him more credit than he's been given over the years? Because, I mean, if it weren't for him, let's face it. Uh, they would have been up, you know, Shit's Creek. <laughs> yeah, Max is a hero. Uh, he's a hero in my eyes because we were kicked out of Wall Kill. Uh, they had 18 days to construct a stage, medical tent, backstage, first aid, uh, water fountains, phones, uh, everything. 18 days. And it ra- and it rained like 14 of the 18 days. It's still a record for rain in Sullivan County, New York. So they did a magnificent job. 
Um, but the reason that it's so mythical is because it was a cosmic accident. 500,000 people jammed together tightly in a field with not enough water or food or bathrooms, and then a monsoon on Sunday, and not one reported instance of violence. And there was no police. Mm. How could that how could that possibly have, have transpired? Uh, it, it had never transpired prior to that with that many people and no incidents of violence, and it certainly hasn't happened since. I think it was, well, first of all, it was a different time, and I think it was a statement. You know, he uh, Michael Lang put it out there as peace and love, right? Uh, an Aquarian festival. I think they that message kind of was more important than the bands uh, playing, I think. I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, I I think that it was just a get-together, almost like a, not a protest, but just a get-together for everyone to share the same vibe. Do you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Talk to some of the artists, and they'll tell you that the real show was in the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, we went like in the, the words of the Paul Simon song, uh, we went looking for America mm-hmm. and boy, did we find it. We went looking for like-minded souls, mm-hmm. uh, and we found them and there was, there was a brotherhood back then. There was yeah. a togetherness. We are the peace and love generation and boy, did we prove it that weekend. Yes. I mean, just a few months later, you know, Altamont. So it just goes to show that. Ultimate to me was a message that this can't be repeated. Woodstock can't be repeated. It happened. It was almost spontaneous, like you said. And when it's when you try to force it, it just uh, bad elements sneak in. Yeah, it really was amazing. I mean, none of us knew what we were getting into when we went. We just knew the bands, the names of the bands. Hell, we weren't even going to go. We were going to yeah. go see Led Zeppelin in, <laughs> in Jersey Shore yes. that same weekend. Yes, they were playing Asbury Park on August 16th, Saturday. Yeah. Uh, did well, you, let's go back to that. Uh, how did you hear about the event? Did you buy tickets? Uh, I mean, how, did you heard it on the radio? Yeah, WNEWFM. Uh, kept uh, a steady stream of advertising with all the names of these bands. You know, back then, maybe we more than most would go see bands at Madison Square Garden or Asbury Park Convention Hall. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, When we were 17, 18 years old, we were going into the village to see the bluesmen who were still alive back then, Lightning Hopkins. And and so, you know, when, when Brian Jones... Uh, and the Stones were on <clears throat> uh, Hullabaloo or Shindig, one of those two shows, they they insisted on bringing out Howlin' Wolf mm-hmm. to open for them. And I, I'll never forget it. I think I was like 15, and I saw this huge black guy. And he was, he was like, I'm, I've never heard music like that before in my life. And I remember asking my mom to take me to the Newark Library where I would listen to people like Howlin' Wolf, Mississippi Fred McDowell, uh, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. So we were blues fans and we were rock and roll fans, but you can't see all those bands in one weekend on one stage anywhere. So we forgot about Led Zeppelin and I bought my ticket at the last straw, a head shop in Bloomfield, New Jersey, $15 for all three days. Wow. So yeah, I know. Right? 
So you're driving up there, okay. What was it like? I mean, you had no expectations. You were just going there to hang out, really. Um, what was it like driving up there? There was no traffic until a certain time? Yeah, we were so excited driving up there. Uh, <clears throat> I had my 64 Chevy uh, box of a car. My, Neil didn't drive yet. He was too young. That was your and, friend, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, my friend Neil, right. Uh, and we kept on, I remember, we kept on chanting the names of the artists we were going to see. We'd be driving down the highway and we'd be going, Jimi Hendrix, Canned Heat, Mountain. Yeah, and we would, we would shout them out. And we were so excited. And then, of course, we stopped dead on Route 17B for hours and mm. hours. So much so that we got the Monopoly set out of the car and we played a game of Monopoly on the roof of the car. Wow. How far away were you from the site at that point? And uh, not too far, not too far. Okay. Uh, yeah, because we the, the, the car started moving. We hadn't yet finished our Monopoly game. Right. So we, we had to scramble uh, because the guy in the back of us kept going, come on. And uh, we got there. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they herded us into this big field where we were told to park the car. And then we said, well, you know, we got all this stuff. Uh, a tent, blankets, towels, food, pot, books, the Monopoly game, clothing, um, toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, everything you would want for four days of camping. Mm. And we got out of the car and we go, well, where's the stage? So we figured, well, why don't we just go down and see where the stage is? We'll come back to the car later and get everything. Uh, and, and there was there was a, um, a Volkswagen bug with about 18 hippies in it, like a clown car. And they said, we got no room for you, but <clears throat> uh, uh, stand on the running board and put your hands in and then you could ride down like that. And we did. And they tore down that mountain that we thought we were going to die falling off the car, but we didn't. They got down there and we fell off, thanked them and found the site. We found the stage. There it was. It was huge. They were still working on it. It was late afternoon on Thursday, the day before the festival. We couldn't believe our good fortune. So we got to the front of the stage, and uh, I, 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 I remember I rolled one joint from the car, left the bag of pot back in the car. I smoked. In fact, I didn't know where to smoke the joint. I was afraid to smoke it and, 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 and view people. I had no idea what we were going to get into. So I ducked behind a tree. And I smoked the joint, <clears throat> and then we uh, we found some people that were there, and guess what? They had a Monopoly set. <laughs> and we, we played Monopoly all night by flashlight and fell asleep right where we uh, we played Monopoly uh, in anticipation of what we thought was going to be a, a morning concert the next morning. So did you go in the pond at all? Did you take a nice uh, dip in the pond? <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I next... believe that was Saturday. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Quill was playing oh. and they were awful uh, they sounded like a bunch of guys banging on pots <laughs> so I took Poor off Quill. <clears throat> there were still uh, hot dog stands open hot dog stands yeah the hot dog stands actually you know what the hot dog stands were only there Friday I think by Saturday they had run out of hot dogs already Wow. Um, but the point is I took off me and Neil would leave intermittently and we knew how to find each other because the people next to us had this big flag 
And we always saw that flag so we could get back to our spot right in front of the stage. I mean, 500,000 people, I think we were like 80 or 90 people deep. That's it. Uh, we could see the faces of the of the artists. What was uh, the flag? It was, yeah, that's a good question. I have no idea. Maybe it had a peace sign on it. Uh, I don't know, but there was this flag and that became our barometer for where to go to. But yeah, uh, when Quill was on, I started wandering around. I saw the lake. It was so hot that uh, it was sunny that uh, I noticed people, there were uh, naked girls in the lake. I had never seen such a bucolic 60s tableau right in front of me. I mean, it was like a dream. So fine. I divested myself of all my clothing. I put it on a rock, hoping no one would take my clothes. Uh, and I went skinny dipping. And that's when I met her, the girl in the lake. She's in the book. Yes. You know, it's funny. It's not like meeting somebody on the subway. Yeah. Uh, she was naked. I was naked. Uh, I, we locked eyes. I went up to her. We talked. Uh, I asked her to come back with me. I, I kept bragging about what a great spot we had right in front of the stage. Why don't you come back with us? I think we kissed. I don't remember. Uh, were, you in, said, were you in the water at this point? Definitely. I'll never. I'm 68 years old. I still remember her like it was yesterday. Uh, I, I never even got her name. We kissed. We hugged. Uh, she turned me down to go back to the spot. And she said she was with her boyfriend. Uh, uh, I went to I went to Woodstock, a virgin, and I came home the same way. So then, after a full day, Friday, which Friday's music was, uh, it, it was probably a good day for music, but it was nothing compared to what was to come, right? Right. Well, it was folk night. Yes. On and uh, I was really into folk music. Uh, I had listened to all the Woody Guthrie records at the library. I was super into Phil Oaks. And Dylan, in fact, Dylan was like a hovering presence the entire weekend because everybody kept saying, ooh, Dylan's going to show up. Dylan's going to show up, you know. Especially uh, with Joan Baez there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And especially with the band there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he lived in Woodstock, the town, which yeah. wasn't that far away from Bethel in New York. Uh, but he didn't show up. Um, right. You but, said that Tim Harden was... Uh, you you expected more out of him, or you were disappointed? Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I loved Tim Harden. I mean, he wrote uh, "If I Were a Carpenter." He wrote "Reason to Believe." He wrote "The Lady Came from Baltimore," and he took that great protest song by that great protest singer Bobby Darin, who I swear to you. Uh, a simple song of freedom that Bobby Darren wrote is just as good as any protest song that Bob Dylan wrote. And Tim Harden knew that. And his version of Sing a Song of Freedom, it, makes, it gives me chills. But uh, I didn't know he was a heroin junkie. And uh, he got on stage and he starts singing one of my favorites of his songs, Reason to Believe. And he totally falls apart in the middle of the song and has to start over. And then he can't, it was, it was, I couldn't believe it. And a lot of people were interested in Burt Summer too. Uh, yeah. Melanie, Melanie, who just started out. Right. So there was a lot of excitement about artists playing. Um, and that, but let's talk about Saturday. Now you get out of the pond, you go back and uh, you, you probably experience, first of all, country Joe McDonald, who writes your forward to this book uh, starts, I guess he filled in, right? Yeah, uh, Country Joe was so cool. 
he wasn't prepared to play until Sunday with his right, band. Right. Uh, but there was a there was a big gap uh, after Quill was over. Uh, Santana couldn't start because right. they had equipment problems. So uh. between Quill and Santana, there was dead time. Yes. And they he Country Joe was was sitting on the stage. Looking out at the people, grooving, having fun, and they said, "You, you got go up, go please, play some tunes, please." And, and he walked out. Um, he walked out with a borrowed guitar, and uh, he sang the song. He started out with the song he wrote for Janis Joplin called "Janis," and he sang some country songs. Well, guess what? Nobody was listening to him. It was like a big family picnic. Right. Everybody was doing their thing. And at one point he realized he wasn't being listened to and he walked off stage and nobody even noticed. Mm. And he said to his manager, hey, they nobody listening to me. Can I do the fish cheer? And the manager says, what's the difference? Go ahead. Go back out there and do the fish cheer. Well, he comes back out and he, he yells, give me an F. We gave it to him. And he said, give me a U. And we gave it to him. Give me a C. And we gave it to him. And then after we spelled out that word, he goes, what's that spell? And we shouted out that word at the top of our lungs. And he must have asked five times, what's that spell? And five times we answered him. And I got to tell you, if you're 18 in 1969 with tens of thousands of other people yelling out that word at the top of their lungs, it was cathartic. It was liberating. It was hilarious. And it was the high point of Woodstock. And that's that, is that when you realized... How many people were actually there? <laughs> no, I, no, I realized, I'll tell you the exact point I realized it. When we fell asleep Thursday night, must have been a couple of hundred people right around there. Uh, we played till dawn. Uh, we fell asleep right there. I got up. I, I turned around. I yawned. And I thought I was dreaming. People as far as the eye can see. Wow. And I freaked out. And I, I said, Neil, Neil, turn around. Look at this. And Neil got up and he looked at it and he goes, holy shit. <laughs> I mean, that's when we realized that we were in the midst of it. Yes. And we couldn't get back to the car, even if we knew where it was, right. which we didn't. You're lucky you got to the pond, let alone the car. <laughs> was right there yeah the pond was off off to the side yeah uh, i i stumbled upon the pond yes but the, who knew where the car was certainly not us did you have did you have any sort of scheduled list of when the bands would go on and who would be playing no idea the only thing we knew was that we were going to see these bands that we were chanting uh on the way in we didn't know when they were going to perform and even if we did have a a list of when they were going to perform. They didn't perform at those times anyway. Everybody got so stretched out to the point where on Saturday, Jefferson's uh, airplane came on at seven o'clock the next morning. I was long sleeping. I missed Jefferson airplane and I missed the who, who came on at five 30 in the morning because I fell asleep. Yeah. Well, it's weird because we even listed in the magazine, we, we do an excerpt from your book in the latest magazine in August, the August issue. And it was hard to, you know, because they were scheduled to go on Saturday, the Who and Jefferson Airplane. But we have it under Saturday listed in Sunday morning. So <laughs> it's, yeah. it's weird. Yeah. Luckily, uh, 
I got into, I, I did 32 interviews for this book. Yes, you So there's did. plenty of information about the Who set and yes. Jefferson Airplane set, uh, despite the fact that I was dead asleep. It's hard to sleep during the Who, as loud I as they are. They did not wake me up. Amazing. <laughs> You're probably dead tired, obviously. <laughs> I was unconscious. <laughs> So, I mean, I wasn't there, obviously, but to me, listening to all the live tapes and uh, everything, it seems like Santana, who you had seen before, right? Yeah, they, I think it was like two weeks before Woodstock. They opened for Buddy Miles and a band called Pacific Gas and Electric uh, at the Singer Bowl on the site of the 1964 World's Fair with that big unisphere yes. behind the stage. And uh, Santana that night, Blew me away uh, because no one ever heard their fusion of Latin music with hard rock. Yeah. It, they did it first before anybody. They invented that. They blew, and I couldn't wait to see them again because I, well, I kept telling Neil how great they were. And uh, boy, were they great that day. Yeah. yeah. They had a, uh, they must have opened a lot of eyes if you looked around you and saw the reactions. I mean, they must have been into it, the crowd. Oh, they were dancing around. They were they were boogieing. They were, they couldn't believe it, and and it was the greatest drum solo I've ever heard in my life. Still to this day, I mean, nowadays you don't see too many drum solos in concerts, but but every now and then you get a classic rock band that that, that uh, uh, demands to do their drum solo, and that's always time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, at at, at uh, Woodstock, though, Michael Shreve, barely twenty years old. Mm. took a drum solo during Soul's Sacrifice that just thrilled us uh, because it was augmented by congas and bongos and uh, all kinds of percussive toys that all the other band members would play and shake. Uh, and it just was unbelievable. Well, a lot of artists, and you go over this in your book, turned down the invitation to go. And I was I just interviewed Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, he told me, he said to his manager, I have to wash my hair that day because it was kind of a slight, I guess, against the hippies because he didn't want to be branded with the hippiedom for the rest of his life. And I don't know, that's, that's kind of weird because the Who weren't branded as hippies after that. Um, what do you think about the bands, that, the artists that turned down the invitation? Well, <clears throat> we've got a thing in the book called Invited to the Dance But. Yes. And it's just fascinating. 25 top artists. Yes. And uh, some of them, I don't, we, we don't know the reason why, like the birds. We don't know why the birds or Chicago uh, didn't perform. But uh, some of them do. And I interviewed Ian Anderson for this book. And he said the prospect of playing a festival with a lot of drugs and naked hippies was distasteful to yeah. him. That's what he told me. Mm -hmm. uh, other people have different, you know, uh, the, the Doors, for instance. Michael Lang wanted The Doors. Jim Morrison wouldn't perform because he was afraid of being assassinated. Mm. Yeah, I guess at that time you could understand how he felt. Simon and Garfunkel. They would have fit in perfectly on that Friday folk night, and it would have been in perfect sync with their tour. It would have been one more show on their tour. They didn't do it because they just hated each other so much that they refused to do one more concert. That's amazing. Well, I'm sure almost all of them regret it or had regretted it.
for most of their career, but except for Ian Anderson, I guess. <laughs> but t- tell me about the brown asset. You go about telling people in the book and tell them what they can expect to read about it. You just sort of, you bought it from a lady, right? Selling bread. Was that, is that who you bought? I, I didn't even buy it. Uh, oh. She gave it to me. Wow. Uh, there was this, there was this uh, older lady who, uh, who gave me a loaf of bread. I was starving. Uh, was I she just, just standing there with a booth or what was she doing? She had no booth. She was walking around. I was walking around. I saw her with a couple of loaves of bread under her arm. And I sort of gravitated towards her, hoping she would at least give me a bite. Well, she gave me a whole loaf. And then she gave me a hit of acid. Uh, and and it, it was the infamous brown acid that, that, that they said from the stage, don't take the brown acid. And in fact, when they made that uh, statement from the stage, I remember saying, "Oh no, I just took it." <laughs> Man, that had to be—you had to be full of paranoia at that time, no? We're, we're... Yeah, I, I got a little scared, um, but um, it, the the story gets weird from there. Uh, when was think, this? When did you take it? Uh, probably. Uh, this was Sunday, the last day. Uh, Joe Cocker was rocking. I loved Joe Cocker. The acid started started setting in about midway through Joe Cocker's set, so that by the time he finished with with a little help from my friends, it seemed to me time started to stretch. And he must, it seemed to me that with a little help from my friends lasted about a half an hour and he refused to stop singing until all of us got up and gave him a standing ovation, which we did. And, and the song went on for days, it seemed. Uh, it was just strange. It, it just sort of stretched time. And then there, I, I remember there was a couple to my right, their faces started melting off. Um, and then it, the rains came? Well, here's, yeah, right, right. Here's where it becomes not fun anymore. My friend Neil went to find a phone booth to call our moms to tell her that we were fine. And uh, he never came back. And now the acid's kicking in. And now the sky gets really dark. I was halluc- I thought I was hallucinating. But then I noticed everybody pointing up at the sky. So everyone was seeing the same thing. It got pitch black dark in the middle of the afternoon. How is that possible? Uh, And then the announcement came. Well, we're going to have to stop the music for a little while. We're expecting a storm coming in. Hold on tight to your neighbors. We'll be back. And I stood there, heavily tripping. Three hours, right? About three hours. Three three to four hours of no music and a constant, steady, horrible downpour. And me with the same shorts and T-shirt that I had been wearing all weekend, and it's, I started panicking. I started getting a little paranoid. Where was Neil? Well, you made There's the no- best of it, right? You started dancing. and Well, at first, at yeah. first, I did a little rain dance. But uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was bad. As a matter of fact, would you permit me to actually read from page 211? Sure. I was madly tripping, doing a little rain dance, laughing. But I noticed people weren't laughing with me anymore. They were looking at me funny. And why were so many people naked? And where was Neil? Things were getting weird. It was coming down in buckets. My sense of being alone was heightened by loud claps of thunder and jagged streaks of lightning that brought oohs and ahs as if people were watching fireworks. I started to panic. 
My heart was beating out of my chest. I was soaked. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I had to go to the bathroom. There was no music. I had no idea what happened to Neil. I had no idea where the car was. Anyway. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you explained that the reason why people were naked is they were smart because they took off their clothes and they tried to dry them underneath the stage or something, right? Yeah, they had tarps. They, they put them underneath. That was the smart. Tarps. Yeah. That was smart. I didn't have such smarts. I just stood there. Well, and, you were also on acid at the time, so. The, 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 the spot Brown that we acid. had was now a lake. And I was afraid to leave because Neil would never find me again. Yeah. So I had to stay there. I couldn't sit anymore. They were, the, the mud was up to my ankles. Uh, and I just stood there. And then when and, he came back, he said he talked to your, he talked to his mother and would relay a message to your mother that you were all right. Right. And then he wanted to leave, I think. Neil stayed straight for four straight days. Wow. He was a champ. He was such a good sport. We had made an agreement that we weren't going to leave unless the both of us wanted to leave. And now I'm tripping my brains out. And here comes Country Joe and the Fish doing the fish cheer again. Uh, and the band played that night. And Johnny Winter played that night. And I forgot about my discomfiture and the fact that I was so cold. And there comes the premise of music as salvation which I learned at Woodstock, and it's a lesson that I continue to this day. And that is, as long as the music's playing, everything's going to be all right. And that thought calmed me. And I didn't want to leave yet. I couldn't have driven anyway. I wasn't in no condition to drive. Uh, so we stayed. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning when they introduced Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And me and Neil thought that we were going to see the Al Cooper version of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. That first great album that we loved, Child is Father to the Man. But it wasn't. It was David Clayton Thomas singing that stupid spinning wheel song. <laughs> and we both hated that song. And that's when we looked at each other. We were so uncomfortable. And, and, and I said, he goes, we're leaving. We got to leave. And I said, well, what about Jimi Hendrix? And he goes, screw Jimi Hendrix. We're out of here. And, of course, Hendrix, you know, by the time he played, like 9 o'clock the next morning, there was nobody left. He played to a sea of garbage. Right. And you had eight hours, eight hours to wait until Hendrix. That would have been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but you did miss Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Young. Yeah, uh, but I apologize to Graham Nash 49 years later for not sticking around for their set. <laughs> I miss Shanana too. And it was funny because as when we finally found the car, we heard distant traces of uh, the Duke of Earl hmm. that they play. And we're thinking to ourselves, who the hell is playing the Duke of Earl at this festival? I know Gene Chandler ain't here. It was <laughs> it was Shanana. We didn't know it at the time. Well, what the thing is is that when you left, what was the crowd like? A lot of people have left, right? Uh, not, you know what, uh, not that many, it was like a steady stream of people started leaving late Sunday night, uh, which was actually good, um, because there were people that were also trying to find the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, professor Chris Langhart from NYU, one of Bill Graham's boys from the Fillmore bought out every single Christmas light in New York city that he could find in August and festooned the woods with Christmas lights, hmm. leading the way back to the 
parking lot. And I'll never forget the feeling of absolute calm and peacefulness. And uh, we were flashing the peace sign. I know it sounds corny, but we were flashing the peace sign to everybody. Mm. And, and townspeople had driven up on flatbed trucks with more food. Uh, I'll never forget finding the car and all our food and water. I had to smoke one last joint and Neil rolled his eyes. But we changed clothes. Uh, we brushed our teeth. I mean, there was finally the car. It was like finding manna from heaven. And you were the only one that could drive, so he was he, he was basically waiting for you to yeah, finish that joint. We, right. And we finished the joint. I started driving. We put on the radio, and then I noticed that the music on the radio started sounding a little too good. And I realized, oh, shit, I'm still tripping. Mm. I, I, we got – we, Neil, could we please pull off to the side of the road? I, I can't drive. Neil, boy, what a champ. Uh, and we did, and we slept. We both fell asleep until like uh, mid-afternoon, late afternoon, when uh, everything wore off and we continued our way home. And that was Monday, and it was smooth sailing? Oh, yeah, it was smooth sailing from there, right. So what did you? What were you thinking uh, then? Were you like, this is going to be an iconic event? This is going to be huge? I mean, how long did it take it, that to sink in? Was it because of the press that said you wouldn't believe what happened? Or what were you thinking at the time? We knew on Saturday. Actually, we knew on Friday that the whole world was watching. Mm. We had a palpable sense that the whole world was watching. I mean, Arlo Guthrie came on stage Friday night and showed the, the, the paper, and he goes uh, with the headline, Traffic Snarls Hippie Fest. Mm. Uh, and, and he goes, uh, the New York State Thruways closed, man. That famous line that Arlo said. A lot of freaks, he said. And we realized then uh, that the whole world was watching. Um, no doubt about it. We had that sense. You were like, what did we just experience? <laughs> Well, it led me to become a music journalist. Yes. Because when I went home and, and, and my mom cried and cried. In fact, I end the book with my mom's tears mm. as a metaphor for the older generation trying to understand us. All I did the next couple of weeks was tell people about what I had just experienced. Mm. And, and that led to me listening to more music and telling more people. And you know what? That's all I've ever done my whole life is listen yeah. to music and tell people about it, be it as an editor or journalist or publicist. That's what I do. I listen to music and I tell people about it. And it, it all started at Woodstock. And it came full circle because you told me about it and I wish I was there. I always wanted to be there, but of course I was too young. I was only four years old at the time, and <laughs> I guess I could have been there if my sister brought me, but I wouldn't have remembered it probably. Uh, but I always was jealous of guys like you, and uh, when you, I, I, that's why I couldn't. I always bugged you to hear stories about it because I wanted to live vicariously through you. And now you have a book, and congratulations! It's a great book. Uh, I, I think people should pick it up; they'd love it. And the thing is, is it's one of those, it's not just for people that were there, it's for people like me that wanted to be there. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon, and if you do that, please write a review. Um, it's, it's a fun book. I like the part in the middle. I have uh, a list. I'm a baseball fan, so I like stats. So we list 30, all 32 acts, the time they went on, 
the time they went off, their paid. What they got paid, their personnel. And then I added a little fun thing, their top five albums. Um, and you can ask, well, who? how do you know which is which? I, well, I, I pick the albums. I'm the author. It was fun. It's just a fun thing. Some, some bands didn't even have five albums. Um, but, yeah, that's a fun part of the, uh, of the book, too. Well, mention, you mentioned uh, Quill. They got paid the least, I think. And you mentioned Sha Na Na. Their check bounced. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you're going to Bethel, New York, right? I mean, Woodstock 50 has, unfortunately, not. it's not going to happen. But you're going to Bethel, New York, right? I'll be at the uh, museum in Bethel Woods, August 15, 16, and 17, from 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock, signing, selling, smiling. And uh, there's going to be some great concerts there. That's the place to be. Uh, John Fogarty, the Doobie Brothers, Santana, they're all going to be there. Uh, and it's a wonderful museum anyway. Uh, it's just amazing. So come out and uh, ask me whatever questions you want. I can tell you about some of the parts of the book that was censored. I got to say uh, kudos to Paul Kennedy, my editor, who made the book better. Uh, it's his pictures. He, he got all the pictures he juxtaposed the pictures with the prose so beautifully. Uh, he did such a great job. He smoothed off some of my rough edges. Sure, he took out the story about Janis Joplin wanting to have sex with Bruce Springsteen. I don't know why he did that. But uh, yeah, yeah, you, you're going to like this one. I mean, it's so beautifully laid out and designed. And yeah, he did. He should be given a lot of thanks, too. Well, no thank doubt. And But thank you, Mike, for writing the book, and I hope that you sell some at the Bethel, New York stage, and people should remember that you can sign them, too. And all the best, man. Thank you so much. Couldn't have done it without you, Pat. Thank you for bringing my name to the attention of the publisher. Uh, I, I speak about you in every interview I do as to when they said, how'd you... How'd you get the idea to write this book. I always mention you, my man. Well, I'm glad to be a part of it, and I can't wait till your next book. Um, I know you've been talking about that, and it's going to be great. Thanks again. All right, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It was great talking to you. And people, you got to pick up this book. It's fantastic. Like I said, it's beautifully designed, wonderfully written, lots of facts, Lots of interviews with the artists that were there and some of the artists that weren't there who got invited and turned it down. Anyway, it's called Back to Yasker's Farm. You could pick it up. You could go to Amazon.com and pick it up right now and order it. Or you could go to wherever good books are sold, and that would be Books A Million or Barnes & Noble. In fact, you can go to Barnes & Noble and Books A Million and pick up the latest issue of Goldmine, which is a celebration of Woodstock on its 50th anniversary. Okay, this is Pat Prince signing off, and we'll see you soon.